I'm thrilled to talk to Dr. Paul Hill this morning from the Center for Reinventing Public Education. And I am going to start with a short story for our listeners and for you, Paul. I think I've told you this before, but, um, well, I don't know what, 25, 30 years ago, around 1997, I had young kids in elementary school, a kindergartner and a second grader, and one more still at home. And I had started my PhD and I was a new public school parent trying to understand kind of how things worked. And there were several things about, and my kids were just in a typical public school system, uh, kind of rural, uh, really nice, but nothing special. And uh, there were several things that I came across that I thought just were weird to me. Mm -hmm. Like the principal didn't really have any control over the budget. He didn't really hire and fire. He couldn't really pick curriculum. And yet he was responsible. And I just thought it was I kept thinking, this is weird. And um, picked up a book, Reinventing Public Education, and written by Dr. Paul Hill. And I was as part of my PhD program. And it made so much sense to me that there is another way that we could be structuring like the whole sector, because I'm like, this is a sector wide problem. And that is why I chose to study school choice policy. And I've been doing that for almost 25 or 30 years now because I picked up your book. So I am so thrilled to be able to talk to you today. Mm. I consider you one of the great sages of this world. And um, I'd love for you to just like start off by letting folks know what was the idea you put forth in reinventing public education? Sure. So just a tiny bit of context. I'm a political scientist and I've worked almost all my life on the connections between public policy and institutional effectiveness, and did so in, in, in more on education than anything else. But I actually worked on national security and and other other things. But uh, I, uh, when I went to Rand, I, I was told that Rand believes in getting your hands dirty and 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 being right there with with the, whatever whatever um, policy issue that you're 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 writing about. And so I spent a lot more time in schools than I had ever done before. And uh, became impressed as you were that that um, too often the people in schools were not in control of what happened, and further that that the schools that I was studying, which were at that time uh, district zoned high schools in New York City, uh, th- that almost everybody was there um, uh, for some reason other than the, other than the school wanted them to be there. I mean, they were assigned as the teacher that had the next the next. Uh, forced assignment up, you know, uh, that teachers were responsible to their union and their departments and and other things. Principals were responsible for rules and that the schools were kind of holding companies of, um, for policies and, and, and uh, uh, organizations that were on the outside. And they, and they, uh, they had almost no real ability to, to, to determine what they did. And, and, because almost everybody looked to the outside for their uh, their cues and their incentives, um, there there wasn't much incentive for collaboration inside the school, and so what the kids got was kind of a matter of chance, you know, whoever happens to be there, and and at the same time I was studying some um, uh, non-selective magnet schools in New York and some Catholic schools, and um, as you know, if you've been in schools a lot, you know that schools all look the same and they sound the same and they have, they use the same disinfectant. They all smell the same. But if you look closely, you realize that the Catholic schools and the magnet schools were totally different institutions because they were self self self-controlling and self-governing. Everybody that was there 
um, had to come there because they knew something about the school that made them want to be there, whether it was parents or teachers. And um, th there was a certainly a sense among the faculty that we have a common cause here and that we are collectively responsible for the kids. And so what the kids experienced in the school was very, very different and motivationally very different. The schools and both the both the, the public magnets and the and the Catholic schools had very clear purposes. Uh, for example, um, one school we studied in New York was preparing kids to work on Wall Street and mm -hmm. taking poor kids and getting them into the into the bottom ladder of career ladders in <clears throat> Wall Street firms, and uh, and. <clears throat> Those kids had to learn how Wall Street works and what you have to be able to say and do and look like and so on in order to make it in Wall Street. <clears throat> so their learning was all motivated by by a, a, a purpose set from the beginning, and so was what the people what the faculty did and what they emphasized and so on. And and the Catholic schools were similar, um, and so those schools were extremely purposeful and they were much simpler and. And the schools took a lot of responsibility for kids' development and whether kids experienced what they were supposed to. And so I asked the question, how 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 can a public system be built that supports a, a, purpose, a purposeful, focused school that people know what's going to happen and rely on it as compared to one that's constantly being uprooted and, and, and washed over by new policy initiatives from on high? And that, that's why I wrote the book. And, and yeah. I, uh, so I wrote that book in uh, 90, I actually wrote it in 93, okay. um, and uh, here here that's 30 years ago, I and know. Uh, I, you know, I'm working on other things right now, but I don't think my underlying premises have changed at all, uh, I, I, whatever that means, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, so uh, we're in Missouri, the Show Me Institute, and uh, school choice still feels novel and controversial, and it has been 30, I mean, many of the policies are from the 80s and 90s, and we're considering open enrollment as policy. Right. And one of the fears I've heard expressed from legislators is that schools will advertise. I'm like, that's kind of the point. I mean, the point is that schools have the opportunity to invent themselves to be a product that parents want, right? The schools then have the opportunity. Uh, you guys are based in your Center for Reinventing Public Education, now based at Arizona State. There's multiple examples in Arizona of a district like Phoenix creating a school in order to draw kids from other districts, right? Like a bioscience yeah. school, like using that as an opportunity, not like, oh, no, the schools will spend money on advertising. It's like <clears throat> they are missing the larger picture, which is that this will in encourage all schools to operate better. Right. Um, and, and the... Um... I know people. The, the fear about advertising is is, is kind of ridiculous. Um, uh, you can imagine an extreme version of that where schools uh, compete on 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 kind of trivial. You know, uh, we have we have a we have a good band. We have a, nice uh, bathrooms. You mm -hmm. know, we 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 celebrate everybody's birthday party, party birthday with a big party. I mean, there are all kinds of things that that could even be cues some parents would care about. And I'm not putting the parents down. I mean, it might symbolize to them caring and personalization. But um, uh, schools that say we're Montessori or we do science-based learning or we uh, or or you know we we do a lot of we do blended learning using a lot of very good online resources or whatever that give parents a reason to want to go to go there or some parents a reason to say that's not for me. Yeah, <laughs> which which is I, I think that's one thing that 
that educators don't, don't fully understand. If, if you advertise you're for absolutely everybody under any circumstances, uh, then um, uh, that's what you have to be. And that means that you can focus on nothing and nothing at all. You know, right. you're, you're always dealing with, with uh, uh, divergencies and emergencies and um, schools that have uh, boundaries. And, I, and I, here I don't mean uh, that are, they exclude some people uh, a priori, but, but let people know what the priorities of the school are, what kind of instruction is going to be, what kind of supports kids get, what kind of extracurriculars there are, and, and parents choose on that basis. <clears throat> Not only does the school have a better chance of being coherent in terms of signals to its staff and the like, but parents know what to expect, and they they uh, can also hold the school accountable if it doesn't deliver it. Those are yeah. all really important things. Yeah, and I hear complaints from within the public school system of like, well, we have to take everyone, so we can't, you know, uh, we can't operate like a charter school. Sorry about uh, operate like a charter school. We have to take everyone, and that's the point. Like that would allow districts to be running away or schools to be running away. That's I hate to use the word efficient, but you know, um, but it's more efficient basically because not every school has to be everything to everyone in that situation. Right. And, you know, and the New Orleans um, post-Katrina school system has been very interesting about that. They, they've become essentially a system of uh, self-governing, uh, well-defined schools. And uh, and that's given parents reason to choose and took parents for a little while to learn how to do that and, you know, what, what they really cared about. Um, and there were initially some um, instances of schools that would, would define themselves in a way to exclude some particularly difficult kids. You know, maybe they needed uh, a lot of special education or, or uh, maybe even some institutional placements that were expensive. And it took a while to work out how schools would, uh, would serve everybody that wanted to go there um, um, and not exclude people just on the basis of, of their, uh, you know, their, cognitive ability or, pre or, 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 um, or preparation, but would give reason, people reason to choose X, school X instead of school Y. And that, yeah. um, that, that's, um, it, it, it's not as simple as just creating a, a, a opportunity for people to move, but that's the first step. Yeah. So now we've got these sweeping uh, school choice landscape in Arizona in Iowa, in Utah, and West Virginia, a few other states are trying to make it happen this year, where parents can take their state education money to any school they want, public, private, homeschool. What do you think about that development? Are you surprised by it? I, I'm not surprised by it. It seems like a, a natural evolution, and it and it it it's um, it responds, I think, to the recent experience of the pandemic, yeah. uh, where um, you know parents. Um, well, they had their kids at home. A lot of parents saw what kind of instruction their kids were getting online, and some of them were pretty unhappy about it. Um, and um, parents are are looking for situations where they have a little more uh, assurance about safety and whether the school is going to stay open. And and <clears throat> and especially parents whose kids were um, uh, having tough experiences in regular public schools before the pandemic. You know, maybe. Maybe they thought they were bullied. Maybe the kids were too shy. Maybe the kids had a a, a minor learning disability that made them a little slow on the uptake about some things, and they were getting nailed by their teachers. Or, or, mm -hmm. or, 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 yeah. or I think a lot of black parents in cities uh, think that their kids have have um, have been 
severely punished um, and and got to the point where they rent where the kids hate and fear school and they want to start a new have a new start. So all kinds of reasons why people are looking for something different. And I think that's accelerating um, the 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 building of policies that let people move. Now, I have to say that um, uh, I'm 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 both positive and, and skeptical about these events. Um, just because of the, the the question of the supply side, where do the new schools come from? Yeah, uh, and you know the the idea of chartering was that there'd be some kind of, of overarching uh, oversight mechanism that that created a, a sort of a barrier to entry, um, uh, so that new schools um, would have to make a case about what they would be. They had to describe themselves and make some kind of case about whether there was a market for it and you know, who who'd actually come here. Yeah, uh, and um, uh, and then there was some mechanism for public and private investment to let a school start up, um, uh, so it actually could deliver what it said, yeah, and yeah. Uh, that the opposite arrangement that there's money out there in a certain amount that parents can use to move from one school to another, and that should be enough for entrepreneurs to start good schools, and they will. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I think that's that's to be determined. Yeah, because um, they're not, not coming so with that much money. Start a good yeah. school. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure going to get some fly-by-night operators, but they should not last very long. If that happens, they shouldn't be able to fill their seats. So they shouldn't. Sometimes they do. <laughs> right. I've seen it in higher ed. Right. That happens in higher yeah, ed. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can I, get a bachelor's and master's in dog training at schools that uh, will take uh, Pell grants and student loans, and those schools open and close all the time. But um, I don't know. If that would happen so much, maybe it will. We'll see how it how it all shakes out. But um, but that's an interesting to me, like having been in this for 20 plus years, like seeing this actually come to fruition. Some of the things that you put forth, I think is pretty exciting. It It, it is. I have to say, uh, <clears throat> when, when I was writing the Remaining Public Education book uh, 30 years ago, I, I reread Chubb and Moe and... Um, which I had read the first time. Uh, Politics, markets, and America's schools. Right, but which which is a, a uh, an application of Milton Friedman's theories in, in more detail to to education. But but Chubb and Mo uh, wrote about the need for schools to be licensed. Um, yeah, um, and in effect, the, the concept of chartering or what I introduced in in my in my in the public education book, co- contracting between. Yeah. Uh, uh, public oversight bodies and schools Th- that hadn't come around yet, and so they thought of it as as so, uh, as a licensing function by the state to make sure you didn't get the kind of things that almost everybody fears. You know, you're going to get a school that teaches kids how to be uh, or terrorists or whatever. I mean, I think a lot of those fears are lurid, but but all it takes is one instance to discredit the whole enterprise. And so, anyway, the the people who were most in favor of education vouchers, which is essentially what's happening now, also thought that was an oversight function that needed to be performed. And, and uh, how that's going to be done was a tough one. We resolved it to a degree with charter schools because of charter authorizing boards. Right. Um, and, but of course, some of those have been, have done their job diligently. Some of them have done it uh, overly permissibly and some of them have blocked all charter schools. So, you yep. know, Building a board is not the full solution. It has to be one that takes it seriously. Yeah. Um, another thing that I would like to get your perspective on, since you've been at this for a minute, uh, what about mm. the politi- 
politicization, politicization, right? Thank you. Let's not even use it. But um, what about the injection of politics into public education from both sides? But I feel like in the last, I don't know, decade, it feels like classrooms are being more like swayed this way and that way based on the political environment. And it seems to me in the last few years, it seems to me some of the teachers unions have sort of overplayed their hands in this. And now the, the, the news is full of stories of classrooms that are, you know, hanging flags or not hanging flags or doing this, that, and the other. And parents don't seem to like it. So what do you think about that development? There were all kinds of, of simmering tensions before the pandemic, but um, right. the pandemic <clears throat> kind of uh, shook everybody up and, and, and got everybody's attention. And um, now um, there are just a lot more political agendas being formally pursued connected to schools. And and it's funny, I think the the side you stand on depends on what what side you see. So yeah. if you're slightly to the left, you're going to be worried about the anti-woke, anti-gay, um, uh, uh, the objections to some forms of teaching uh, Black history, blah, blah, blah. And from the right, um, or, or sorry, from the left, you, um, from the if you're on the right, you're going to see the uh, the teacher training materials that that uh, you know emphasize uh, uh, all kinds of woke te- themes and yeah uh, and the like and and the the from the from the right people are very concerned that schools are aggressively permissive in many cases uh, about. Um, uh, responding to kids' individual wishes about uh, the, how they're how they're referred to, whether they're considered a boy or a girl, yeah, yeah. and uh, parents kind of start worrying: is this is this happening to my child? And I don't know about it, you know. Yeah. And, and so, so uh, uh, underlying, I think on the on both sides of the political spectrum, people just don't don't have the level of trust and deference. Um, for public schools and public school teachers that they had before. And uh, uh, interesting, you know, these are institutions that have run, run on their own initiative for a long time. Uh, and and they've been more and more dominated by profession and, and by the discourse inside the profession, the teaching profession. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and they've also been dominated, you know, the textbooks and so on have been dominated by legislatures that tend to be more right. Uh, and and it, I think it's one of those situations where if everybody dug way deep into what's taught in schools, everybody would say from different angles, uh, wow, you couldn't have gotten a majority in favor of this. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, I do and think so, that. Yeah. And, and, and so it's it's a real problem that that the, uh, the schools face. And uh, I, I, I don't. Well, my inclination is to think that that uh, more choice and differentiation is, is is an important remedy to this, and of course that's part of what the the state funded voucher programs are supposed to do. Um, right. And um, and yet you you know you don't want that to extend to um, having schools that that that, that teach uh, you know all kind of black power issues or or schools that teach all kind of white power issues or sure. or Schools that isolate um, kids who may have uh, sexual uncertainty from everybody else because they put all, come all together so they can support one another. I mean, yeah. so, so uh, the the idea of some differentiation I think is a good one, but it, 
it, it only works so far. And you then you run into the question of, of what can we tolerate tax money being spent for? That's right. And we are at a time of such incredible learning loss, right? We have no. so no. much to do on getting our kids to graduate from high school, uh, literate and numerate. <laughs> and uh, I think in Missouri, I mean, our NAEP scores went down like everybody. And I think 40% of our eighth graders are now below basic in math and they're sure. heading. Sure. Those are 2022. So they're in high school now. And below basic means not even partial mastery. So they went on to high school not knowing math. I don't know how these kids will get our high schools aren't stellar and able to catch kids up. They're barely able to keep them where they were. And uh, that's why I get a little bit frustrated with like all of the the uh, politics being inserted in the situation and and the kids can't do math or read and they're not ready for college or career when they leave. That to me should be our singular focus. Uh, absolutely. And um, I, I share your concern. Um, and, you know, what my, my colleague Robin Lake has, has been writing about this lately about what we've had is a K-shaped recovery uh, where um, basically oh, yeah. the children in, in um, in privileged schools and in in private schools, um, uh, and in, in in a lot of in charter schools, um, who are uh, at or above the average in terms of social class and parent education, and so on, they've recovered and are getting better fast. Um, the the top the, part of the K. Yeah, and the and the kids that are the ones that depend most of all on schools to learn and and uh, on average come in with less preparation and so on, they've lost the most, and and so. We have both a kind of a national income issue and and national productivity issue and an equity issue, um, <clears throat> and the Center on Reinventing Public Education has been tracking what districts and schools have done about um, about uh, learning loss for quite some time. And uh, one thing that happened in a study that I was part of just a while ago, we found that uh, districts had had proposed to do something called acceleration where they were going to yeah. change the way the teaching force worked and certain ones would be the ones teaching um, the regular classroom stuff, but there'd be others available in real time right now to help a kid who missed a skill or a, or a, or a concept or whatever to, to bring them up to date. And then the idea was to teach all kids at grade level um, and then, and then, and then back and fill quickly. And, mm -hmm. the, and the idea was that kids that were way behind would have a chance to catch up by intense work and that required a lot of changes in the way schools and districts operated. And those things didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, the, in some ways, uh, that was all co all caused by the turbulence we talked about before. It, you know, the, the premise that every kid would be under close observation by his regular classroom teacher, and that teacher would have resources to put get help for him right now. Uh, well, when you couldn't get teachers to come to school and you were closing schools because of teacher absenteeism and you couldn't get kids to come to school consistently, it was almost impossible to do that. And so um, uh, what looked like a plausible approach and gave everybody some confidence that districts and schools were taking this on seriously uh, became kind of a, you know, it was a failure. And, and now we're studying what districts and schools are doing and they're, they're still at it. They're still trying to get, um, ways to motivate and and um, and um, enrich what, especially the 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 kids who lost the most have lost. But um, you know, the question is: Is there the time? Are there the resources? Will people cooperate? Will things like the collective bargaining agreements prevent those things from happening? And um, 
the, the one fear that I think a lot of people have is that um, <clears throat> in, in some ways, uh, student achievement, uh, especially when you don't use regular tests, yeah. is then a rubber yardstick. You know, grades, uh, <laughs> promotion, graduation, th- those things are easily e- easily varied. <laughs> and, and they have been gamed. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, my fear always is that you game something like graduation requirements. So you just let the kids find out later. They don't know what they need. You know, That's so, right. Yeah. So I'm, right. I'm very worried about this. And, and, and I, uh, uh, you know, so to wrap it further in, it, it mainly affects poor kids. But one thing that we've just found in some new studies on politiza- politicization is that <laughs> the most politicized places where the teachers are most often interrupted by political issues and there's the most the most threats that that districts and principals are being harassed by uh, uh, um, information public information requests and so on are privileged places with a lot of white kids and so um, <laughs> maybe that the people that are, that emerged in pretty good shape from the pandemic won't stay there because of the current politiz- politicization so you had a superintendent survey is that what you is we, that- we had a, what we and rand have been doing uh, kind of three levels of work. They have a national panel of teachers that's representative of all teachers and national panel of, of principals um, and a smaller one of superintendents. And then we dig into a subsample of that in pretty great detail about what actually are, are superintendents doing, what are principals doing and so on. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, student absenteeism. We're missing a lot of kids and at the same time, we had declining enrollment nationally. We definitely have declining enrollment in Missouri. And I don't feel like that's been part of the conversation as much as it should be. That um, I, I understand we're we're digging in on the teacher shortage in Missouri. I think it's being mischaracterized. But uh, at the time that there's so much focus on the teacher shortage, there's not been a lot of talk about the fact that Missouri's enrollment's declined by 10%. It's going to decline by another 10 Wow according to the um, projection of education statistics from the National Center of Education, not by me, but, you know, right, right. The experts who do the algorithms. Yeah, right. And um, and we we act like we're still in this uh, baby boom growth mindset, you know, and and we're not really talking about now. Um, there are some folks, um, Dr. Marguerite Rosa and those folks who are yeah. like, this is a real thing that's happening. And there, I think uh, we did a podcast with Chad Edelman of Georgetown Egenomics Lab, and right. they expect bloodletting <laughs> is how they describe it yeah, the next right. couple of years, because we're not going to be able to keep all these teachers. And there is going to be, I think, within the system of traditional public schools, a lot of, um, you know, uh, heartache and and they're losing parents. And to your point about all of the stuff going on in the classroom, a lot of parents have picked up and started their own schools. You know, they've yeah. done a micro school or like, I don't want to deal with all of that stuff and the curriculum and the books being banned and all that. And we'll just do our own school and come up with our own um, standards of learning basically for our group. And that's been interesting to me. Like the fact that parents have just opted out of the system. Yes. I I, I don't think anybody yet fully understands how that enrollment loss, you know, exactly where are all those kids going? I mean, there is a factor of, of uh, kind of a baby bust, um, yeah. And and there are uh, people doing what you said. They're going to private schools. They're going to Catholic schools. They're building their own. They're keeping kids home. And there are people moving out of metropolitan areas because they they don't have to be there anymore to work. 
and and exactly how all you know, what are the what's the composition of all that. But every, but it's clear that um, that this is a, a, a very tough thing for districts. At, so Marguerite Rosa, of course, was part of the center for yeah. a long time, and um, uh, one thing that that she convinced me of you know a long time ago was that that. Uh, school districts were kind of pyramid schemes in the sense that if they didn't keep getting more money, they were, they were, they were, they were in big trouble. You know, if funding is is steady and you got a teaching force that gets raises every year, you end up being broke very fast. And uh, if, if you don't get more money all the time, so yeah. if you got an enrollment decline, you're getting less money. It, it you know it, it's a compounded problem, and and you can see it in lots of big localities. Uh, Seattle's one and. And uh, I think Denver's another and Chicago's another where there are so many under-enrolled schools that cost a lot of money and um, uh, that they're trying to figure out a way to rationalize the, the number of schools and their placement. But that runs into community politics and the fears of neighborhoods. And um, it, so districts are, are in a world of hurt and their only chance uh, uh, other than take hold of the problem and really work it, which I doubt they'll do, is to is to get in such desperate straits that they've coerced the legislatures into giving them more money. Well, okay, so closing question. Since you called for a reinventing of public education 30 years ago, how do you feel today in 2023? Optimistic or pessimistic about where we're headed? Yeah, good question. So yeah. <laughs> the the nuanced. Um, <laughs> you know, what the, the term reinventing public education was meant to refer to, back to um, stuff that David Osborne and others wrote uh, in in general about public sector, about public services. They 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 meant you know uh, having competitive uh, uh, competitive private uh, delivery of services under public oversight, uh, and and you know their ideas came from lots of other fields, and I was applying that to, to K twelve, um, and uh, I, I don't know. Um, anyway, so, since I wrote that book, obviously there are a lot of factors that determine what happens, and and the charter movement <clears throat> was was a you know a, the sort of thing I had in mind, but it wasn't caused by what I wrote, I don't think. And uh, but it, I think it's been a on the whole extremely positive thing. I yeah. think that that um, the um, building of charter oversight capacities in by districts and states, though screwed up sometimes has been good. I mean, Ohio is a fascinating example of a state that made some blunders and got much better charter oversight. And I think that that kind of good charter oversight is 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 the model for the way public education ought to be overseen in general. Um, uh, and so those are good things. And obviously, um, kids who get into these new environments that are more adapted to them and more individualized, and more able to take advantage of of new technologies and things that change. I think those are good things. But um, the, what I hoped to see was that districts uh, realizing that they needed to compete in, a, in an environment where all these things were happening, that they needed to create circumstances for their own schools that gave them more freedom of action, let them hire their own teachers, uh, let them differentiate more fully, um, uh, held them accountable on on key outcomes and, and, you know, and had enough oversight of what they taught that you wouldn't get a, <clears throat> an aberrational school that was teaching uh, Karl Marx or, Na or, or Hitler or something. Uh, but, but that, that you had as open a system as you could. 
Um, and, and the money flowed where kids went instead of being tied up in things bought by the district and sent to schools. And uh, very few districts have actually done that. Um, yeah. Even though even though the rest of the, of the system, the entrepreneurship and new ideas, th- those have found ways in. So I, I, I consider what I was in, in, involved in and other people, um, you know, a, a mixed success. Um, and one thing I've learned as, as I got older, now I'm, now I'm almost 80, um, is that things take longer than you think. And uh, um, if you see movement in a direction, even though it's a lot slower than you thought, you're, you're stupid if you call it a failure. But you do need yeah. to say, you need to say, well, this is harder than I thought and it takes longer than I thought. Uh, I do think this is a, a, a time now where there's a new opportunity for um, uh, transparency, especially about money and school oversight. And I think it will make a difference. But um, I think a lot of districts are going to have to be get into dire straits before they before they budge. Yeah. Well, so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving us the time. I appreciate it. Wonderful insights. Um, and uh, I will follow your work at the Center for Reinventing Public Education. Thank you. I had a wonderful time. Thanks. Thanks.